Hi guys, welcome back. I'm Brianna. I'm Maharo. And I'm Demaya. And this is She Thinks She Knows Podcasts. Um, so today we have uh, the project, the senior project manager of Springfield, Myron Hatchett. And he's joined us here today to speak on his profession and sort of the work that's being done in Springfield, a little bit of background of how I met Myron. I was doing an internship uh, last summer, 2020, for a school um, that was two schools being combined in Springfield. And one day I just seen Myron and I was like, oh, hey, because obviously he was another person of color that on a construction site, that's kind of a rarity. So. I right. want to introduce myself, and he was very polite, and he told me, you know, anytime you want to talk, just let me know, and so the time has come. <laughs> so, Myra, <laughs> if you want to give a, a little bit of a further introduction, you can. Sure. Um, again, my name is Myron Hatchett. I was born and raised in Springfield, went to Springfield Public Schools. I um, left and went to um, HBCU, um, Hampton okay. Institute at the time, now Hampton University. Um, and then transferred to Syracuse University and never finished college. I started mm. and had to return home and get a job. <laughs> so um, I returned home and couldn't find a job actually. And, um, but eventually got a job as a draftsman at Friendly Ice Cream Company who built restaurants. Uh, there's not too many of them left around anymore, but at the time, I think they were building probably 70 restaurants a year. So that was my introduction into the um, design field. Um, the fortunate thing for me at working with Friendlies, we did all the disciplines from civil engineering, mechanical, electrical, um, the HVAC, the architectural and structural. So even though we were just building restaurants, um, we did the entire package. So it was a great learning experience because um, I only spent a couple of years in college and had to drop out. So that was my beginning. And at night, I met a, uh, an architect in Springfield, a black architect named Erskine Chafin. And I started working with him at night, moonlighting. And uh, we um, still collaborate today. Erskine is in his 80s. And he's still practicing. He slowed down quite a bit, but Erskine is still um, practicing. Um, so that's kind of my uh, road to get into this profession. And um, years later, I um, kept at it and eventually got my license. So I am a licensed registered architect in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. A couple of the points that you just hit on have been coming up around us a lot lately. One, um, like going to HBCUs um, at the cafe, like, and, and just like my little cousins and stuff, like we're hearing that a lot, a lot, a lot lately. Two, um, you know, what does like taking a break from college and then, and then going into the real world look like? And so you're an example of, you know, success. I guess you could say, um, what's the word? Oh, I, I can't think of the word right right now. But um, you're an you're an example of success in a way that is 
unorthodox, unorthodox, quote unquote, to be. It, it, it is. Know. It is somewhat, especially in in my profession. Yeah. Um, architecture is has traditionally been a lily white profession. Um, art black architects make up probably one and a half percent of all architects in the United States, which equals like maybe 120,000. There's a, about 150,000 architects in the country and we make up around 1,200, which is mind blowing even to today. And women architects are even, women black architects are even less. Um, my road was orthodox because I dropped out of college and looked for a job couldn't find the job and ended up enrolling into a local skill center um, to take up drafting because um, I was working. You guys travel up 91 every day to go to UMass. Well, I helped build 91 back in the day, working as a laborer in a hole in the ground 20 feet deep in my up to mud up to my knees. Um, and that wasn't fun. And then you get laid off. So um, that was still looking for work and entered the skill center as a draftsman, but I could already draw. So the, um, the director recognized that and basically gave me a certificate without having to complete the course. So I lucked out in that respect. And with that little certificate, I started looking for a job as a draftsman and eventually found one at Friendly Ice Cream Corporation. Um, but to be an architect back then, you had to work 13 years, which is your apprenticeship before they would allow you to take, that's a long time. And that's what I did. I worked 13 years before I could take the exam. And the exam is a nine part exam that was um, at the time administered over five days in the end of June. So you're packed into a gym in Boston with two or 300 other folks sweating and trying to you know take this exam it's similar to like the bar exam so it's a course of four days and each day you're in there for almost eight hours the last day is a design exam so you got to design the entire building and that's a 12-hour exam so um the first year i passed five out of the nine i went back and passed another two and then went back to pass the, the last couple and I passed one and then they changed it. So it was paper and pencil. I, I don't know if you all guys ever saw T-squares and triangles, but we used to draw by hand on paper. It's not, it wasn't on computers. So during that interim, they changed the exam to computers, which I didn't know. So that was a kick. So I had to go to stick to try and learn CAD drafting and uh, obviously their program was different than the program that was on the exam. But anyway, I, um, I took the, the, so in that interim, the one last e exam that I had to take was, was building design. They split it up into two, two tests, two separate exams. So now instead of passing one to get my license, I had to take two. So at the time I got frustrated and said, forget it. And I didn't take the exam for years after that. Not working with architects and building all kinds of buildings, but you know, it pissed me off and was hard-headed and didn't take the exam until years later. Um, my boss at Reinhardt Associates kept 
bugging me to take the final two exams, which I did. And I passed and became an architect. And once I did that, he made me a partner, which I didn't know that was right. But um, so that's how it worked out. So yes, it was a long road. It was definitely an unorthodox road, which I wouldn't recommend anybody do. And now you can't do it that way. Now to get a license, you have to get it. You have to have an architectural degree, either undergraduate or over um, a, um, a master's degree. So even the course I took, that route isn't available to um, to young people any longer. So it was it was a long road, but it was well worth it. And once I did get licensed, even though I was a pro became a project manager during that time. Um, the respect level that I got from my peers changed. It really did, and it was it was noticeable. Um, not that I needed their respect because I earned it every day out in the field or in the design room with a studio, just by showing improvement. But um, it, it it was um, something that you know I I you know in retrospect I said, well, damn man, you shouldn't have taken so long to get your license, but. Regardless, I did get it and was quite proud of it and, and became a principal and a part owner afterwards. So one thing that I wanted to point out was how you mentioned that your way was very unorthodox, but that, that's not really an option anymore nowadays. No. And so with the road to being an architect or a project manager or field engineer or whatever, since it's become right. very straight, more narrow, now, how do you think that that kind of impacts people of color who want to go into that field? Knowing me, I went to college for that. And I see that there's really kind of one path you go into. And if you're trying to split into, you know, supervisor, right. project manager, it's a different path. So how does that? That's, that's, that's correct. It, um, it does narrow the field. Um, like myself, you know, I was considered a journeyman and that path no longer exists. So you have to have a college degree now in just about, I believe, every state in the U.S. Um, so that does limit some people if um, they don't have the resources to go to college. Um, that basically cuts them out. Um, being a journeyman, even to become a project manager, um, Brianna, it's, um, it's, it's the old boy network. Um, you noticed all guys that were on the, the construction site last summer a lot of those guys are there because of their uncle father or their cousin or whatever so that network is intact and they're trying to hold on to that forever so you and i are threats and that's how they look at it you're like we're taking their job like they're privileged uh, and they own that so that's a challenge that we'll always have to um, deal with, which um, I'm not complaining about it. That's just the reality. And it just makes you stronger. And if you know the rules of the game, then you adapt and you do your best and you study hard and you work hard. And as black folks, we've gotta be better than them anyway, far as their perspective. But that's okay too, because I've always done my best and I always deal with excellence. Um, I can't design a building that's 1% wrong because that 1% could cause a collapse and that could cause people to get hurt or even killed. Um, so the license that I have um, 
is all of, is issued by the, the state of Massachusetts because you're taking people's health, safety, and welfare into your hands. Um, so that's a big responsibility. Um, but again, you know, to, to, to just go back to your question, yeah, it does limit some people's opportunities because they may not have the particular resources to be able to follow that path on a collegiate level. Um, one good thing, though, is that the local community college, uh, Springfield Technical Community College, does have courses in architecture, and they do have courses in construction project management that can start on a path um, in those fields if that's um, the person's chosen uh, profession. So that is a, another way, which means obviously that the community college is cheaper, the state colleges are cheaper. Um, so there is still opportunities there that we have to take advantage of any, anything that's available there. I really like what you said about how you acknowledged um, being a person of color in this industry and how people will see you. Um, can you speak more about that experience throughout the many years you've been pursuing and um, acting as an architect and also as a person, of, as a black man, why is you being in this position significant? Like, what does that mean? The, um, you know, it, um, Maharo, most of my career, I've been the only black dude there, either on a construction site, um, the only person there in a management position. You'll see twos and fews of um, um, black men and even fewer women that are tradesmen. Uh, we're doing better now, um, but I've generally been the only guy. And in the offices that I've worked in, I've been the only guy. I did work for, again, Erskine Chafin, a Springfield Black architect, which, which was a great experience. And I was fortunate enough to work for another Black architect in Hartford, Milton Lewis Howard. So those two guys became automatic mentors and you know they were both successful. They both had their own practices. I learned a lot. Um, Milton in um, Hartford was a taskmaster um, because he drilled into your head that you gotta be better. You know, and it was something that, you know, at times, you know, you know, like, dang, man, lighten up. But um, he said, my name is on these drawings. My name. And he took great pride in that. And that translated all the way through the rest of the staff. It wasn't a big staff. It was probably about five of us with the firm. But um, you got that sense of pride because he was a prideful individual. And, um, and it translated. So the work that we did, we wanted to make sure that it was tight, that it was correct, you know, that it was bulletproof. Um, so, you know, that experience um, helped me greatly because it showed me successful black men in a, in a profession that's dominated by white men. Um, so the importance of it is, is that it just proves that we got the goods. You know, there's no inferiority in there like we've been taught since we were young. In my generation, when I grew up, 
you didn't want to be black. And that's crazy to hear. I'm 67 years old, right? And growing up, we used to see, you know, Tarzan was a big thing in the movies and on TV. And black folks were made to look like pickaninnies and fools running around crazy and being ruled by a white man in the jungle in their own homeland, okay? So we didn't want, nah, nah that ain't me. I got Indian in me, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm not all black, you know. So any excuse um, you tried to instill on yourself because we were made not to be proud of who we were. So again, I grew up in a time that I was able to experience that sea change, okay? So in the 60s, um, where Black folks started to um, realize who they were, that we were just as good and as talented and just as smart as anyone else, and that we started to embrace our African heritage. And, you know, that, that was a sea change, you know, and um, we all grew Afros and started wearing dashikis, but that cultural awareness really had an impact on me. And um, I changed my name to Myron, which means divine builder. You know, my, I was named after my father. I was a junior. My name was Milas Jr. And even growing up, I hated being called a junior. I said, well, damn, man, why can't I have my own but anyway, in high school, I changed my I changed my name, um, much to the chagrin of my parents, and um, you know. But you know that was the self awareness that that I was able to experience, and that helped grow me and make me the the man that I've become. So yeah, it's 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 very important um, that we excel and that we achieve and that we are successful because we can never forget that we were made slaves and we were made slaves for a reason. And the whole background of racism was that we were inferior and that exists today. More so in the last four years when that clown was in the White House that brought all these other people from out underneath the sheets. But yes, it, it, um, it had a big impact on me being mentored by successful black men and that is my mantra that I've had to take on to um, pass that same ability and that same pride on to the younger people. When I saw Brianna on the site, I had to approach her and speak to her because again, there's twos and fews and I make it a point to speak to every black person on the site. And some young folks were a little more hesitant, but I made them speak. I said, yo man, they don't even want you here. You're going to be the first one to get laid off. So, you know, let's kick it. So, yeah, it's, um, I'm proud to be a black man. And that's, that's my thing. We really appreciate your honesty and transparency um, because I know that, you know, people our age, it's not as easy, people from younger generations, it's not as easy to come out and be open about their blackness and while working in a predominantly white space and knowing that they're not inferior. So I think that um, that piece that you just said is really gonna inspire people. Um, I was wondering um, what is the project that you did that made you like fall in love with what you were 
what you're doing right now, still today? Uh, wow. Um, I, I, I've been on some interesting projects. Um, I can't particularly think of one that made me fall in love with architecture. Um, I think when I enrolled in the School of Architecture at Hampton, that got me excited. You know, I always appreciate art. I was always an art. That's some of my, you know, some artwork in the background and in my office and stuff. But, um, you know, I always drew, you know, I grew up drawing Spider-Man or whatever. But um, I think entering, I, I, I was an art major originally at Hampton. And my second year, I transferred to architecture and didn't know nothing about it. Never took mechanical drafting in high school or middle school. But I, um, I liked what the guys were doing. You know, I just thought it was cool. So I, I, I enrolled. Um, but to answer your question, I, I, I worked on some interesting projects. One project that I helped design um, in Groton down at the sub base was called the um, Submarine Escape Trainer, which was a brand new building that we built for the Navy. And actually what it was, was a building that housed a giant swimming pool. And within that swimming pool, they basically put in a mini sub. They put the sailors in the sub and then they sunk the sub. So with the sailors in it, they would fill it up with water. And the purpose was it to train these guys how to get out of a sinking sub, which was crazy. Uh, but that was really interesting project. Uh, and we did it from scratch. You know, we had to do all this research and, you know, the, the Navy, they have all this criteria and stuff. So that, that really was an interesting project. And when I saw it in action, I said, oh man, these dudes are nuts. But, um, but that was uh, that was an interesting project. Another one I did was at um, Bay State Medical. Um, I helped design a neonatal ward, which is the ICU for infants, newborn children. Um, and we were given the job. We had did a lot of renovations at the hospital, but this was a major one because it's ICU, um, critical care. Um, and the infants are, you know, it's life and death. And actually one of my daughters ended up being a patient there when, when she was born. But um, that was a real interesting project. And again, part of the beauty with, with architecture is that um, people use what you built. You know, people use it every day. They slam the doors, they open the windows. Um, but they use what you create. And, um, and that's, a, that's a hell of a feeling, you know? Um, like I said, my daughter ended up being a patient in that, in that ward, um, which again, gave me a sense of pride and some trepidation. Well, I hope I did it right. <laughs> I don't wanna put my own daughter in jeopardy, but, um, but yeah, th those are two interesting projects I did. Um, I designed a new uh, aircraft um, hangar for the A-10s. That's the, um, I mean, the um, F-15. Um, That's the, um, the Raptors. That's one of the US's killer machines. That's one of their best fighter jets out at Barnes Airport. And that, that was an interesting project. I mean, they call them weapon system, but it's really a killer machine. But, you know, my task was to design it take all the criteria 
and get that thing designed and get it built. So those, those are covered. And I built a lot of schools, which are great projects, hospital work. I built fire stations, police stations, city halls, libraries. So those are some of um, part of my repertoire. So one thing you said, that the idea of being able to make something that people use and also being able to go back and say like, wow, I made that. I always yeah. liked that. I like, that was one of the reasons why I really liked the idea of construction. Like for yeah. me, closing it more on like housing, any little project that I had, I'm like, yeah, that's me. And I always go back right. to um, a story when I did Habitats for Humanity for an uh, intensive right. in high school. And it was cold. We didn't, we didn't really know what we were doing, but they're like, hey, you want to use the handsaw? And so me and Mahara right. were cutting out the steps. So we didn't know. I don't think I knew at the time that it was going to be the steps, but we were cutting it. And yeah. the whole time, I'm like, oh my gosh, like these are uneven. Like <laughs> it looks crazy. <laughs> But when it came together, I was like, oh, that's us. We did, you know, like the you feel like kind of a sense of ownership to it. And it's like every right. time I go down that strip, I'm like, yeah, when I was in Habitat for Humanity, I helped with right. those kids. <laughs> so I definitely relate to that idea of being able to make something that's like, oh, people are going to use this. Um, right. But also in you mentioning the many projects that you did and um, you being someone who was born and raised in Springfield, I'm assuming you've had a lot of work you've contributed to a lot of the structures here in Springfield and you would have obviously more insight than us on the kind of life uh, the culture Springfield had in the past. So would you be able to kind of elaborate on what Springfield was like when you were being raised here and what the, what the I guess, environment of it was like uh, with all of the renovations that were being made and all of that stuff? The um, Back in the day, <laughs> right? Um, like I said, I grew up in a, in a great time. You know, I grew up in the late 60s and 70s and 80s. So coming up, um, there was a cohesive black community basically around Mason Square. Originally it was called Winchester Square, um, named after a former mayor. And some of my elders got it changed to Mason Square because Mason was a um, black philanthropist from Springfield. He made his fortune during the gold rush during the 1840s. So Primus Mason was his name and we got it named Mason Square. So that was a, um, and, and that was great. That was huge because that was like the first time something got named after a black person in this town. Um, plus he was a philanthropist. He um, the, the Mason Wright home over on um, Walnut Street, which is a home for the elderly, he created that. You know, he donated the land, he donated the land at, uh, at Mason Square. So this was a bad dude. And um, so the, the, the black community was based around Mason Square, the Mason Square neighborhood, um, the McKnight area, Quincy Street, um, Gun Square, um, those neighborhoods uh, were predominantly Black. And prior to that, like when my folks first came into Springfield, like a lot of folks in Springfield, they settled in the North End. So the North End originally had a huge Black population. And then they started migrating up the hill and settled on, on Uptown 
into um, the Mason Square area. Um, and then it was divided, State Street kind of divided um, on the uh, south side of State Street, Quincy Street, Union Street, those were more poor neighborhoods as opposed to what was on the northern side of State Street where you get the, the town, the, the streets named after the colleges, uh, College Street, Harvard Street, Yale Street. Um, so when I was born, I was born on Oak Street, right down the street from the um, Dunbar Community Center. And like I said, my parents were acting like the Jeffersons, so they moved across State Street to Lafayette Street, um, you know, to little better homes and, um, but a lot of black folks did. So again, the black neighborhood was all there. And that's how it was basically when I grew up. Um, everybody knew you on your street. Um, you know, everybody knew everyone. Um, it, it was a pretty close knit and a fairly unified neighborhood. Um, and if you got in trouble, the word got home that you screwed up before you did because everyone knew everyone and Mrs. So-and-so saw what you was acting up around the corner. So, you know, that got home before you did, you know, but um, that's how it was for me growing up. It, it, it really was. And there were black um, community leaders that, um, you know, they were out for the community. Um, Bob Hughes started NES, which was Northern Educational Services. Roger Williams was a developer who built Burton Circle and apartments on uh, Union and Quincy Street and down on Rifle Street. Um, we had educators that were like the first Blacks in, in the public school system, Al Pryor, Dorothy Pryor, Shirley McLean. Um, Rebecca, Rebecca Johnson, yeah. who was the school was named after that I that I built. That um, um, she was um, Springfield first black principal. Um, so these these folks were they were tough, you know what I mean? And and they were of my parents' generation. So these were folks I was always looking up to, and um, they were keeping an eye on me because they knew my parents. So you know you always had had folks looking after you. And the change was that I see it when black folks started moving out to the suburbs. Again, you know, trying to be upward mobility, um, getting better jobs, trying to get better homes. But that, in my opinion, started to fracture the black community as it got spread out. Um, as it was, as it is today. Um, I'm out in the suburbs. I'm on South Branch Parkway where my parents moved out here um, when I was in high school. And um, so that's had a big effect on the black community in Springfield, in my opinion. Um, I was born here, so I feel free to be critical of my hometown. Um, and our so-called black leaders, if that's what you want to call them. Um, and I'm not trying to be overcritical, but I believe some are more out for themselves than they are for the community. You know, they're more out for a photo op 
than they are for doing the actual work. Um, and again, that's my opinion. Others could think what they want, but I'm entitled to my opinion. I'm going to stick to it. Um, so as far as the community, you know, that, that transition, I think, had a big effect. Again, when I was growing up on Hancock Street, Walnut Street, there were probably five Black-owned bars and clubs. Downtown, there was a bunch of clubs. Um, not that that was our only business. We had insurance companies. We, there was uh, Mr. Mullins, was a, he had a major printing company in Springfield. So there were a lot of um, individuals that were um, entrepreneurs and had their own businesses that I was able to take advantage of as, as a, as a um, young person. Mm -hmm. Again, those individuals left a heck of a mark on Springfield and they're not always publicized, but they're, they're giants for us, this town and this community, they're, they're giants. That sounds like a time I would have wanted. I would have wanted to experience because back in the day, back in the day, they're like Springfield man. Springfield was lit and all this stuff. I'm like, really where? Like, yeah, you know, I mean, you've heard. You guys have probably heard of the Harambee. You know, they brought it back, which were mm -hmm. young like yourselves. Um, they started. We attended. A, yeah, we actually on, attended uh, Hickory Street, and yeah, just two weekends ago, um, they they brought the Harambee back a couple of years ago, but. The Harambe used to be at the um, D. Barry Playground that I've taken over building a new school on right now. But, you know, we used to get national acts. They used to come. And that was something that we always looked forward to. You know, this is long before the Stone Soul Festival. But the Harambe was something that everybody looked forward to because it was a Black holiday. And, you know, it was the whole weekend. And you would see people you hadn't seen in a long time. So it was a real, real community event. My parents always tell me about the Harambe back in the day and how this is the only weekend I could stay out all day and all night. <laughs> and everybody used to come to Springfield, all these famous people. Oh, no, it's, it's true. And <laughs> they, you would hear the music all, all half the night, all over different neighborhoods. But yeah, it, it was a great experience. It really was. Okay, so now we're going to take a break. Um, Myron just gave us a good background about himself and sort of the development of Springfield. And when we come back, we're going to get more focused on his work um, and the projection, I would say, of Springfield in general. Um, yeah. <music> All right, welcome back, guys. Um, we're here with Myron Hatchett, the Senior Project Manager for the City of Springfield. Um, prior to this break, we were talking about how he got into architecture, what the culture was like in Springfield, and a lot of the projects that he had his hands in. Um, and so now we're going to sort of focus it more on, you know, the development of Springfield, uh, the current uh, climate, or the current pandemic happening and um, also his personal businesses. So um, to start off, from a resident's perspective, my perspective, it seems like gentrification is at the forefront of the city's development. So would you agree with that statement or, um, or not? And what are your thoughts on it overall? Yeah, gentrification is definitely happening all over. 
all over the country. Um, and yes, in Springfield, as we touched on earlier, the um, Mason Square neighborhood, um, the Old Hill neighborhood, um, the black community has become dispersed and moved to the suburbs or other areas of Springfield. And that has had a, a big effect and other folks obviously have come in to, to take the place. Um, so yeah, it, it is real. Um, I don't, you know, I guess you have mixed feelings about it. I, things change, people move, you know, um, life goes on. Um, but that um, sense of neighborhood and community, I think has been lost. Um, to, a, to a certain degree. Um, so yeah, gentrification is real. Um, you know, it's gentrification gets replaced by suburbanation, you know, so the shifting populations definitely have an effect. You know, there's a, a large Hispanic population that is uh, moved in. Um, there's a Russian population, there's a Vietnamese population, again, that's moved into different neighborhoods in Springfield. Um, and in certain respects, they um, tend to have a little more unity, um, for one, by speaking the same language, um, looking out for each other. And it's, it's, it's a challenge that Black folks have always had um, to, be, to remain unified. So yeah, gentrification is going on. Um, I bought a house. Um, my first home I bought in the Hill McKnight area on Clarendon Street, raised on my kids there. And, um, you know, it was a street full of black folks. And, you know, when I ride down that street now, it's no longer like that, you know. Um, not that that's a bad thing, but that's definitely a change. And yeah, I would definitely have to agree. Um, my family also, they were, you know, since they were children, they lived in the Mason Square area. And I lived in the Mason Square area too, all the way up until my freshman year of college. Um, we all lived, um, so a lot of my family, we all used to live in the motorcycle building. Um, and now we don't live there anymore. We all live in Forest Park, which is totally not a black neighborhood. Um, right. But I go there and I'm like, wow, like one, I miss being here. And two, like it's changing so much. Like the way they redid the building and opened up that whole side, like it's just crazy. And then like, it kind of makes me feel guilty in a sense, like when you were just talking because you're like, you know, yeah, like life goes on, things change. And I'm always like, I need to move out of Springfield. <laughs> so I'm just like, Demaya, you're contributing to, to the problem. But, but yeah, know, it, like it happens all over. I've got three daughters down in uh, D.C. And uh, one of them has been down there a long time. You know, she lives in Northwest, you know. Well, DC's always been Chocolate City anyway, but you know, she she says, Dad, it ain't like it used to be. You know, you see people walking down the street with poodles. Ooh, black folks have a poodle, but they, you know, it's just different, you know, and, and the shop owners are different now, you know. So it's it's happening all over. It it really is. With that being said, um can you think of any 
developments that have been happening or that are ongoing that are positive um, for the communities of color in Springfield? Let me think. Um, I wish I knew more about developments that are going on. Um, my job limits me to what the city builds, um, which they have their own interest. Um, and to be quite frank, I can't think of, well, let, let, let me backtrack a little bit. There is a, um, there are black builders, there are black developers. Um, one in particular, Austin Graham is a, um, a developer who's been building homes and beautiful homes for a number of years. He's got the houses that were just built up on um, Berkshire and Berkshire. Basin. He um, built the homes um, out here in the suburbs um, off of White Oak. Beautiful homes, selling for $400,000. So those are homes built and developed by a Black man, financed by a Black man, um, that are affecting those particular communities and providing home ownership to people. Um, and again, beautiful homes, well-built homes. Um, and there are other um, builders around um, that are um, doing maybe smaller projects, individual homes. Um, I designed and built a home myself that I put on the market and sold a couple of years ago. It's a home, but that help that particular family and I ride by there now and the grass is cut the grass is beautiful so you know they they've taken ownership and done well with it um but more in in our own community or or the black community or Mesa Square neighborhood um you know the the motorcycle building is being developed but again that's being developed by a um a very rich development group called um, First Resources from Boston. Um, they bought the other half of the Indian Motorcycle Building, which was first developed by um, a black group, um, but they were only able to do half the building. So First Resources, um, they're completing the other half of the Indian Motorcycle Building right now and have bought the old um, Firestone tire building across the street that's been vacant for a lot of years. So that, that's a fairly high profile building that's um, being done by a private developer to give affordable um, housing to, um, to people in the neighborhood. Um, beyond that, there's nothing that's really jumping out at me real quick. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a good question, and it's a um, and it's a tough answer, and I wish I had more to offer, but that's what comes to mind initially, um, Mahara. Um, so just to follow up, are you aware? Um, I don't know how like in the loop you are, or I know the pandemic has changed a lot with like community forums and things like that, but. Mm -hmm. Are you aware of um, the community, the community's own like expression or like what they want to see in terms of development, um, like with gentrification happening? Um, are you aware of like the community voice as the architect yourself? No, I'm not. Um, so in that respect, maybe I am out of the loop. Um, you know, I've got an 
ear to, you know, fairly much what goes on in the community, but no. Um, and that forum is something that um, should be heard um, because you have to talk to people in the community to find out what they really need or what they really want, as opposed to someone saying, here, this is what we're gonna give you. Um, like the India motorcycle development, I'm not aware of any meetings that they came in and saying, well, what is it that you guys really want? As opposed to, this is what you're gonna get. Um, and that community, and, the um, engagement can be done and it should be done. Um, when we started working on the Brightwood project downtown, Brianna, and, and now the Deberry project on the Hill, we did have several community meetings. We, I think with Deberry, we started a year and a half ago um, at the Deberry Elementary School and inviting the neighborhood in to get their feedback, to get their ideas, and the same thing happened down in the North End. What is it that you want? And some of those ideas and things we were able to implement into the design. So the forums that you're talking about for community development is real important. Just not sure, and, and I'm not aware of what those forums are and what input potential developers are receiving from them. Um, so I'm curious to know with uh, this pandemic going on, you say that you said you mainly just work on what the city sort of puts in front of you. So their projects, which are right. different from just the overall projects right. happening in Springfield. Right. So, I'm, a city, I'm a city employee. So yeah. That, the mayor's my boss. <laughs> so, so with that, have you seen a shift with the pandemic? Um, have you seen a shift in sort of the industry and in general and uh, has there been you know a different strategy to placement of buildings or timing and any of that stuff the um yeah the pandemic has had a huge effect on design and construction um you know the city has had uh you know they've had to you know change the way they have delivered services um, City Hall was closed for a good period of time, um, except for essential workers. I was an essential worker because, again, I oversee safety and health and welfare. So we continued to work straight through the pandemic and didn't lose any, any time. Um, so, yeah, the, the, on the city side anyway, yeah, there's been a, a shift in how services are delivered. And in some respects, maybe... Um, a little better because in certain certain respects, like even on the construction site, we had to work more together. You know, we had to help each other more um, because it was the nature of it. We, um, you know, we had to make sure things were clean and sanitary. Um, there was trouble getting supplies and materials. So those things that were available were shared more. So there were lessons learned that, um, that helped us get through the pandemic. When we built um, the Brightwood School, it was right through the thick of the pandemic. 
I mean, right in the heart of it. And we didn't lose much time and we still got the building built on time and on schedule, um, which was a, was, was a big effort. Um, and on the design side, I think, um, you know, the schools have become more aware of air quality. Um, you know, so there are scrubbers in the building. We changed HVAC systems. You know, we've done the, the, the visible things, you know, hand washing stations and, you know, being more um, sanitary. We, you know, I don't know how much it helped, but we disconnected the electric hand dryers and hell, use the paper towels and we're not trying to spread stuff in the air. Um, so there was changes on different levels, um, but air quality was, is, is a big one. And that is also translated into uh, what, what the architects are doing um, to make the buildings um, a little more airtight, to have um, the right amount of air changes, um, to have quality filters in the HVAC systems, um, to take advantage of sunlight. So if you're building something new, you can try and orientate. So you've got um, more natural light that is always healthier. Um, that also induces better learning environments. Um, so yeah, there's, there, there has been changes um, because of the pandemic uh, in those areas that I think are off for the better. And hopefully they will um, remain, you know. Um, you know, whenever there's a, a flood, like look at Tennessee or, you know, whenever there's a disaster, the fires in California, the community get, comes together. They, they forget about race and class and status and, and, and they pull together and, and work. They just help each other um, to survive. And that's a beautiful thing. The unfortunate part about it is after the, the emergency is over, a lot of that fades away. So that, that's a challenge because it shows that there is good in people and that we have the capability and the capacity to do um, good things for one another. Um, and the challenge again is to just not do it when there's an emergency or there's a disaster. You just spoke about being a, an employee of the city of Springfield. And one of the things we were wondering um, are what are some of the organizations in Springfield that you guys partner with? Um, and what do some of these partnerships look like? The, um, the, city, the city does, um, for example, I'm with the Black Men of Greater Springfield and we mentor mainly black boys. That's, that was our original mission. And we started branching out to deal with girls. Um, and I've, we've gotten support from the city um, through financial means, but also through the school department, through um, some of the teachers, um, especially through the superintendent who has provided lesson plans to us so that 
We know what the students are getting in class. So we can try to dovetail that in on the service that we try and provide. Um, so we're all kind of on the same track of what the kids should be learning in school instead of just trying picking and choosing what we think they might be lacking. So we, we've, our group personally has received great support from the school department in particular and from the city, um, which has helped, you know, a couple of generations of, 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 our, of our young men. Um, but other, other community groups, um, I'm not involved in, in a lot of community groups. Um, that's a personal choice. Um, I've been grinding, you know, doing my thing and helping young people and trying to get young people jobs and internships. So to answer your question, other groups that the city engages with, um, I don't know. Um, but I do know that when we um, built um, Brightwood School, you know, we, we engaged with the New North Citizen Council. And when we started developing D Bear, we got a hold of the Old Hill Neighborhood Council um, just to get people at the table so we could at least get their ideas. But citywide, um, I'm lacking in that knowledge. So moving into sort of the label that's been put on Springfield. So as you may know, or may not know, because I don't know if it's something that's been on this, been put on the city for a long time or if it's new, but Springfield has been labeled as a very dangerous city um, that many people are like, there's, it's violent, it's gang-filled or whatever the case may be. Um, so what do you feel like needs to be done to make Springfield the place that people can see in a positive light um, while also making it a place that the community recognizes. So I know you mentioned that with a lot of the school projects or if there's a project happening in a neighborhood, you guys try to get the city involved. Um, but what are your personal takes on what could be done to make people say, I, this is what Springfield used to be like or Springfield isn't the, the terrible place people think it is? I, uh, I've, I've raised all my kids in Springfield and they've all done well, um, fortunately. And I think Springfield is a great place to raise a child. Um, and we've got, a, we've got a good school system. We've got fairly safe neighborhoods. Um, there's danger in every city in this country, even in the country. Um, so, you know, I'm not just taking it back if there's a comment oh, Springfield's dangerous. I don't necessarily agree. Of course, there's crime, there's murder, um, there, there can be violence, but overall, I think Springfield is a fairly decent city to raise a child in or raise a family. Um, what could help enhance that image? Um, the city needs to promote the good things. You know, um, they do to a certain extent. Um, and if there's something bad, I, I don't think you can just sweep it under the rug, but you put a positive spin on it. You know, there's crime, but maybe crime is down. You know, um, I know the um, dropout rate in Springfield has dropped quite a bit. Um, 
where the dropout rate in Springfield at one time was like 50%. And now it's down into the teens. You know, the test scores have all gone up. So things of those nature have to be promoted because people are looking for a safe place to raise their family, safe and a place that they can get a decent education. Um, my children went to public school and I've got one that's a doctor or another that's in med school and one that became a VP at Comcast. So, you know, I'm blowing my horn a little bit, but, you know, they've done well and they all came out of public school here in Springfield. Um, the city needs to, I think, um, be more bold um, in their thinking and in their development. Um, you compare Springfield to Hartford, and there's a big difference. Hartford is smaller than Springfield. Hartford's population is smaller than Springfield. But if you ride through Hartford, Hartford is much more city style. Um, they got their baseball stadium built. Um, they, for example, the uh, Civic Center. The Springfield built the first Civic Center in New England not just Mass, in New England. And they built a little dinky 7,000-seat arena, which at the moment was wonderful. But a few years later, Harper said, oh, yeah? Watch what, how we do it. So they messed around and built a, uh, uh, an arena twice as big, the Harper Civic Center, brought in a professional hockey team, the Harper Whalers, and took all of Springfield's business. Springfield's Casino. It's a joke, in my opinion. <laughs> you know, but, we second that. <laughs> you know, it's so I sat on the, the historic commission once upon a time, and I'm not trying to digress, but um, so I was seeing the plans initially that they were proposing, you know, with the tower, the high rise, and the skyscraper, and all of this stuff. And um, you know, it's the okie doke, you know, here you see it, now you don't. And they they trans they substituted a 26 story hotel tower for a six story hotel tower, claiming they were saving all this money. But yet the project still ended up being a 900 million dollar project. So where did all the savings go of those 20 stories that they didn't build? I don't know. But anyway, um, I think the city part of the city's problem is that they never thought bold enough. And it's never too late. The Riverfront Park, compared that to Hartford's Riverfront Park, it's a joke. So those are some of the things that I see that the city just doesn't think big and bold enough. And if they did that, I think it would also help improve the image and bring more people into Springfield that would wanna live, shop, work here I definitely agree with that I I've gotten because prior to growing up here I, I did spend a lot of time here growing up but I never actually paid attention to Springfield I was always like oh there's nothing here in Springfield me and Demaya um, always talk about how downtown is not active at all on weekends not active at all hey. and I'm now at the age where the downtown area is supposed to be my hang spot you know like <laughs> As a young adult, you always imagine, oh, yeah, we're going to hang downtown. Like, when you hear downtown, you think 
stores, entertainment, right. all of that stuff. But it's, it's not there. You have to go to like West Springfield to go to the movies. You got to go to Chicopee to go, you know, so I've noticed that um, I don't know if it's due to the tornado that happened um, years ago that there's just a lot of empty ruins, empty buildings all over downtown area. And I don't know the process of how you acquire, you know, if the city acquires the land or if they're waiting for someone to buy or if it's private or public, whatever the case may be. But any every time I walk downtown, I'm like, this could be used for this. This could be used for this. Put in a, exactly. put in a racetrack center, put in, some, you know, like right, make right. young people want to go downtown and well, have fun. That's or what the city don't. needs is ideas like you're expounding on. Yeah. And at some point, because um, you guys have got an interest in community development, um, that you may start to find out how to start financing that. For example, the city is all this COVID money, okay? And they ain't spent. And they bought three buildings downtown, okay? That, well, we're going to develop them. Well, the city ain't going to develop them. They got to find a developer to develop. You know, um, and and there's a lot of, you know, you know the government can play a a, a role because they can offer tax breaks, they can do this and do that, um, but those ideas is what the city needs, and they need to think bold. You know, they've been too timid, in my opinion. If they um, need bold. Is you guys no seriously? You guys keep it under wraps because I want to tell all three of y'all something. There's no expiration date on a dream. Doesn't exist. There's no expiration date. You got a dream. You can work on that thing. As long as it takes. As long as you keep your eyes on the prize. That's something that you can shoot for and keep working your plan. And I got to bring this party and that party and this financing arm or this bank or whatever. Um, so just keep that in mind, keep a notebook with them ideas and them properties and, you know, there's a consortium that's going to come about and say, okay, I got the idea. Here's the plan. Here's the business plan. Help us implement it. Wow. Oh my gosh, I'm just like, oh my goodness, like that perspective, it was just so great. And I never, I'm obviously like developing and development is not really my lane, but I'm so excited that you just gave my friends that, <laughs> that outlook on it because I'm going to push them to do whatever they can oh. because it's really important. And I think that, you know, like you never know if you don't try, like, you know what I mean? So, oh, thanks for that. There's, there's, um, all right. So there's a new black owned club, Dewey's place somewhere in the street where fat cat, mm -hmm. young black man from Springfield, um, white lion brewery. We were hanging out there Saturday night with a Bismarck key tribute. Um, black man, he's not from Springfield, but young black man started his own brewery company. Um, level five up on Andrew Street, opened up by a young black man. Um, and these are young folks. So again, I give young people the props because they are pursuing their dream. 
and these I don't well Ray Barry he's 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 not as young as the others but the other cats early 30s you know what I mean so you know it's, it's something inspired there are guys to meet say well how did, how did you do it you know how did you finance it how did you get your license so um you know so those are some recent examples uh wings over springfield you know and there's black restaurants all over the place um this month we had you know taste of black restaurants till the end of the month so um you know, there's black entrepreneurs. Everybody's not cut out to be an entrepreneur, but we can support them and help them become successful. That was wow. I didn't, I didn't even know there was a taste of black um, restaurants thing happening yes. like, at all. <laughs> yeah, we were on it. You guys, our... oh, that it was the it was That's the right. place that put out. Yeah. Oh, okay. But That's what right. your family's it? restaurant is on it. Yeah, look at that. So, I know. So, speaking of entrepreneurship, you have your own business too called Born Design. So, um, if you could let us know a little bit more and the people know, let them know a little bit more about um, what your business is and how you manage running your own business as well as working for the city. Well, Born Design is is a it's a consulting firm, a design consulting firm. Since I've been working, I've been hustling, you know, doing drawings, designing houses, people's house additions, people's stores. I did additions to Harold Funeral Home, Henderson's Funeral Home. Um, you know, it's just was hustling. Um, I survived three recessions and when I was out of work 14 months, one time and 12 months, another time, you, you got to hustle. Um, so I did drawings for contractors and builders. And, um, so it was basically a hustle. Um, I went on my own a couple of times, um, and partnered with another guy. So. Um, you know, so I've been at it for a long time and more recently I'm trying to not do it as much <laughs> because I'm getting tired. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's a big effort because you work all day and then you work half the night. Actually, I'm working on a lady's house plan right now. So, you know, I, I still do it. And actually I'm doing a duplex for a lady that it's kind of funky. It doesn't look like your regular, typical duplex that you see. Anyway, um, so yeah, it's it's it. It was out of necessity originally, um, by being out of work, and I said, well, I can draw and I can design, so might as well put it to use, and it it's it served me well. Um, so yeah, it's it's and and I I try and help people all the time if I can. Um, but lately, I, I've been concentrating more on trying to introduce young people into this profession, um, like yourself, Brianna. Um, it, was, it was a pleasure meeting you on the job site with Dan O'Connor last summer. So I said, mm -hmm, we got to kick it up a notch. So I've got a young lady 
um, working at DeBerry as an intern. She's a uh, graduate from Putnam High School and she's attending, actually she starts next Monday to Western New England College taking engineering and project management. So I got her hired by the um, owner's project manager, Skanska International, by approaching them and asking them how many people of color you got. None. So I said, well, we're building in the community. I think y'all need to consider hiring somebody. And they did. So I, I got her an interview. They hired her. She's been working there all summer. And they've offered to keep her employed throughout her school year, whatever hours she chooses to make. So she's got a job with them. And when she finishes, she's going to be making six figures. Um, I got another gentleman also from Putnam um, who was hired by Fontaine Brothers, who's the construction manager on that team. It's not Dan O'Connor on this one, it's Fontaine Brothers. So he is going to Fitchburg State as a freshman also at the end of the month, but he's worked with them all summer. So they're both working on my DeBerry project. And then I approached the um, architect who's from Boston and asked them the same question. They said, oh, Myron, we can't find anybody. You know, so, you know, we've heard that a million times. I said, I'm glad you said that because I got some light for you. So actually I contacted Portilla and um, I said, I'm looking for a couple of candidates to, you know, do an internship with this architect. She sent me two names and their resumes, sent them to the architect and they hired one, they told me they only had one position, but they hired that gentleman and he's worked all summer. And actually I finally got to meet him just yesterday because we had a, a ribbon cutting for the new, the new school and um, they brought their entire firm down. So they were there for the ribbon cutting ceremony. And um, I was introduced to him by the principal who I first approached to get him a job. And he was real thankful, but I had never met him. And um, when he walked away, he turned around to came and said, he said, how did you find me? You know, since, you know, you know, we don't know each other. I said, so I, I told him he got referred to someone I didn't know in Boston. So those connections mean a lot. Um, when they say it's about networking, that is true. And he's got a job already. They promised him a job over semester break. So they, those three individuals have gotten their foot in um, and they're not even in college yet. Well, one is the, the guy in Boston, he, he was a freshman, but these other two, they're just entering college at the end of the month. So these connections um, and with you guys too, it's important to, um, to try and intern, you know, if, if there's not a mentor available, then find one and make them step up to the plate. You know, if y'all can use me, use me up. Because, you know, you're, you're, you're the generation that's, that's doing it. I'm, I'm, I'm being in all honesty with you, with you ladies. Um, I'm very proud of what you're doing. And it's necessary. Um, black folks have a lot to offer. We're the most talented folks in the world. We're always creating stuff and inventing stuff. And um, we need to keep it up because as you can see the last four years, you know, a lot of things turned against us and it wasn't anything new. 
you know, those attitudes have been prevalent for the last 400 years. So we got work to do always. Wow. I will definitely be contacting you because you just, wow, that was a, that was really great. I really appreciate that. And I, and honestly, I don't know if we've said this, but the work that you're doing is very much appreciated because I personally have never, you're the first, I believe you're the first black architect, black project manager, black anything that I've met in the construction field that has a position of, of influence that kind of connects to me. And I remember going back into the internship when you were like, if you see someone like us on the job, speak to them. And I made it a point to act, to go out and talk to the people. And anytime I see someone, right. it wasn't that many. And I'm like, yeah. oh, hi, what's going on? Because it just kind of, it changed my outlook on, on the whole project in itself. You know, like right. me being in the office with, you know, white males, it wasn't, I was, I was lucky enough to be able to escape to the job site and say, let me see what everyone else is doing. And I, I made great relationships with my coworkers and everything. It was also really nice being able to walk the site and talk to some of the people that look like me, like, oh, hey, like a casual thing. So right, I definitely right. appreciate that. And this conversation yeah. is very inspiring. Yeah, it's, it's important. It's important. Yeah. Um, I don't know if. No, question. Yeah. All right. With that being said, um, we're going to wrap this episode up. Myron, thank you thank so you. much. You just going from sharing your story. And then to like sharing your philosophy, I think that was very powerful. Um, that resonated a lot with us three and inspired us a lot. I can just feel it. And I feel like, That's you know, good. That's good. yeah. <laughs> and I think it's a, it does the same thing for our audience. Um, to our audience, thank you guys so much for following along. Myron is proof that this season has been so strong with guests. Um, make sure to look out for our other content coming up and subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already and stay tuned for more. Bye guys. Thank you for having me.